0: Nothing Else Is I tacked his photo up on the pinboard as soon as I got the class list. Not that it would do me much good, I knew. When you've been teaching as long as I have, they blur, rather, all those half-formed little faces. Alfie Halker was the name, and underneath was the list of allergies. Funny, I'm sure we weren't so sensitive when I was young... There were kids with hay fever and the odd one who'd come out in a strawberry rash, but nothing to compare with this. And when it came to allergies, young Alfie Halker took the nut-free biscuit. His constitution seemed designed for a planet built on entirely different chemical principles. There was scarcely a carbon-based life form that wouldn't make his system erupt, Cats, feathers, hen's eggs, lemon juice, milk, rubber, tree sap, you name it. You'd think he was one of those unstable isotopes to be manipulated through toughened glass by men in special gauntlets. But young Alfie didn't need gauntlets or kid gloves or any other kind of special handling. In many ways, he seemed pretty much like any other nine-year-old. He wasn't all pale and wan and sickly although you'd have to say he was a little bit aloof. He didn't roar around the playground with aeroplane arms or brag to his little mates about his football team. In fact, he didn't really make friends at all. Not good friends, anyway, and he didn't seem to want to. He was on the edge of things, mostly, observing. In particular, I got the impression he was observing me, though not in the normal way. I was used to the desperate doe eyes, the attention-starved pleading, the broken-homed glaring. But he was more like a stray dog that tracks you from half a street away. Stop, and he does too. Move towards him, he backs off. You know he's after something, but you're not sure exactly what it is. Though, to be honest, once I'd established he wasn't going into anaphylactic shock at first exposure to the school nature garden, I didn't take too much notice of him. Not for those first few weeks of term, anyway. It was just after World Animal Day that he came back onto my radar. I was marking projects about a school trip to the zoo, if marking is not too grand a word for it. Over the years, I'd developed a technique for marking without engaging my brain at all. Well, at least not the conscious part of it. It was as if there was a rhythm to it, like doing a household chore, and I could quite easily daydream for twenty minutes and find I'd worked through an entire class's homework, with mistakes underlined, praise apportioned and marks given, and have no memory of doing it at all. But on this occasion... I was ploughing through Alfie Halker's effort when one of his sentences brought me up short. I reread it. They tore our tickets and with rough strife we went through the iron gates of life. Where on earth had this come from? Perhaps it was the strife life rhyme that stopped me. Or perhaps it was the weird vocabulary. I mean, how on earth would a nine year old know the word strife? But actually, it wasn't that either, because it had a curious ring of familiarity about it. That was it! I knew it from somewhere, and then it came to me. It was Marvell, wasn't it? Andrew Marvell from the Coy Mistress poem. And tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. It's not that I'm some kind of literary boffin, it's just that it was one of Sean's poems. Sean had a little repertoire of poetry that he'd memorised during his time at drama school, and he didn't need much encouragement to show it off. A nice view on a walk or the end of a drunken dinner party with some friends, and he'd be off. I know it sounds a bit pretentious, and of course it was, but nobody minded. It was just Sean. The only thing that did used to irritate me was the faux Irish accent he'd sometimes adopt – He'd justify it by explaining that the modern Irish accent was much closer to the way English was spoken back then, but that sounded like rubbish to me. How could anyone possibly know? No, he just fancied himself in a fisherman's knit, propping up a bar in County Kerry, and that's pretty much what I told him as we walked home from the party that night. You might have the name Sean, but that's all it is. It's just a name.' You make yourself ridiculous when you get into your glazed-over Irishman nonsense. Your family's lived in South Norwood for at least three generations, to my certain knowledge. But the more I protested, the more he came on like the cattle raid of Cooley. Ah, it'll be a ghost in the accent, sure, Michaeline. Colleen. It wasn't what you'd call an argument by any stretch, but there was a slight sour note somewhere something that we'd normally have tracked down and laid to rest. But we were almost back to the doorstep when he patted his pockets, said, ''Damn!'' under his breath, and then popped off across the road to buy that pack of cigarettes. ''I'll be back in a mo'. Anyway, Andrew Marvell's sudden appearance among a few rudimentary sentences on a trip to the zoo was certainly enough to pique my curiosity about young Alfie. I flipped back through his homework book, And now I saw that he'd ended his story of the previous week with the phrase, Nothing else is. I'd underlined it at the time and suggested, And that's the end of the story. But now it came to me. It was done, wasn't it? John Dunn. She is all states and all princes, I. Nothing else is. It had been another of Sean's favourites. I wasn't sure how to account for it. If it's theoretically possible for a chimpanzee to type Hamlet by hitting a keyboard at random, then I suppose there's no reason a nine-year-old shouldn't inadvertently quote from Palgrave's Golden Treasury. But on balance, it was unlikely. No, it had to be the parents. Do your mum and dad read poetry to you, then? I asked as I handed Alfie his book the following Monday. It was naughty of me. I knew I shouldn't have. I mean, what could he say? Even a straight denial would have planted the seed of a malicious tease in the minds of his little mates, and he was smart enough to know it. He twisted uncomfortably and scrunched his features into a soundless, ''Huh?'' So I let it drop. Then, a few days later, I spotted his dad picking him up from school. He was one of those men with close-cropped hair and a cheery word for anyone within range. Oi, Geoff! Bet you was feeling green Saturday, eh? No tax on smiling, darling. That kind of thing. In my mind, he's standing next to a white van wearing sawn-off denims and an England shirt. But I think I probably made that part up. Anyway, you get the picture. He was definitely not the poetry type. The poetry, I decided, was coincidence. That's the name I give to a lot of the stuff I just can't be bothered to think about. You know, the chance meetings, odd feelings, premonitions, deja vus and so on that some people allow to clutter up their heads. Our minds were engineered for quieter times. That's what I tell myself. There's just too much information these days to go rummaging for patterns and making weird connections. Once you start down that road, there'll never be an end to it, and I'm sure Dunn and Marvell would have languished, forgotten in my mental trash, had it not been for what happened in the library. It was the first Friday after half-term, and it was the turn of Alfie and Patrice to stay in during lunchtime play and help me tidy the books. It was supposed to be a chance for teacher to have a bit of one-on-one time with the kids, but I always used it for marking. In most cases, that was just fine by the children. I mean, who wants to make excruciating conversation with Miss for half an hour? But it didn't suit Alfie, I could tell. As the two of them slotted the chapter books back into the shelves, he kept glancing at me over his shoulder, like he'd been shut in a barn with a large domestic animal but there was no way I was going to look up. I ignored him, same as I did the rest of them. It was Patrice who interrupted me first. Excuse me, miss, he said. May I go to the toilet, please? Of course, I said, without looking up. The moment he had left the room, I sensed Alfie approaching. I was sitting at the far end of the room like a great gulliver on one of those shrunken, kid-sized chairs that make the grown-ups feel so ridiculous on parents' evenings. I didn't want to engage. I wanted to get through the marking. So I hunkered down and kept on ticking. When I did finally look up, his face was a finger-length away from mine. I shied back from him and tried to focus. I wasn't used to being that close to someone else. Actually... I've never been a very physical person. Even when I was with Sean, I'd sometimes have to pull away, keep him at arm's length and just look at him for a while, try to make sense of that fantastic mind parading around in his frail little body. He certainly was an oddly proportioned bloke. Judge him by his head when he was sitting down and you'd have taken him for a big man, at least a six-footer. But his body was on a completely different scale... So when he stood up, your eyes would reach for a spot way above his crown and you'd have to drop your gaze a good four inches. The few times I saw him on stage, he reminded me of a glove puppet with all the character in his huge expressive face and his body drooping down below like an empty sleeve. Not one for the pot, are you? I liked to tell him, giving his scrawny bicep a little pinch. I knew it would cue him up for some smutty remark or other, but I would take it from him. That probably doesn't sound like me, but, well, as you've gathered, Sean was the kind of fella who could get away with it. So, as I was saying, I certainly didn't take kindly to this little nine-year-old crowding into my body space, although squatting down there on my perch ten centimetres off the ground, I didn't have much room for manoeuvre. "'What are you?' I was starting to frame a question when I felt Alfie's little hand reach over and slide my skirt up over my knee. All the warning lights on my dashboard lit up at once. I think I opened my mouth and closed it again. I could feel his finger through my tights, tracing a figure of eight around my kneecap. I felt my eyes starting to bulge. For a moment I just didn't know what to do.' I looked down at the figure of eight going round and back, round and back, round and back. And before I could react, he'd stopped, smoothed my skirt down, and backed away a few paces. He half-nodded at me and said, "'Remember?' I avoided him after that. "'What else could I do? What would you do? I mean, he was nine. Who knows what would prompt that kind of thing? Who knows what he might have been through? He probably needed help, I could see that, but as far as I knew it was an isolated incident. And if you want the truth, I just didn't want to get involved. He was still waiting for me, though. He'd loiter in the corridor at breaks, swivelling his eyes in the forlorn hope of contact. He'd hang around my desk at the end of the lesson, willing the other kids to leave the room... But children are easily avoided, even the ones who share your classroom five hours a day. There are white lines over which they may not step. There are strict codes of silence, protocols of address. There are the dire threats and punishments, and if all else fails you can always retreat to the staff room. Yes, we teachers know how to wrap ourselves in the mantle of power and mystery." I thought I could hold him at bay indefinitely, and then I slipped up one lunchtime. I was supposed to be supervising the lunch queue, which required little more than a forbidding presence on the edge of the playground. It was dull, but I was often able to switch off and spend a few moments dozing on my feet. I thought I'd perfected the technique, but on that occasion I must have nodded off completely. Don't ask me how. "'Miss?' There was something I wanted to say to you. I came round with a snap. My mind whirred for a second and then I realised who it was. Alfie Halka. I fairly screamed at him, I can tell you. Get in line! Now! He backed off, looking reproachful. Then he turned and sprinted into lunch. I realised then that the playground was empty. There were no lines to go back to. They'd gone in without me noticing. Worse... I was pretty certain they'd all have heard me shouting, which proved absolutely right. There was a slight pause as I walked into the canteen. Eyes down, eyes left, eyes right, and then a ripple of snickering. Get in line, now, a little voice piped from somewhere and half the school spluttered out its soup. After the shouting incident, Alfie lowered his profile. He lurked in crannies of the playground, poking at insect life with twigs, sharing the contents of his pockets with the other quiet ones. His hand stayed down in class. There was no more poetry. He faded. If I sensed him at all, he was no more than a pair of tiny cartoon eye-whites in the corner of a pitch-black room. But he was still waiting. Because a few weeks later... There he was again. I was in a hurry. Year six were doing their SATS tests that afternoon, and I had to get the papers over to the hall. One moment I was alone in the classroom with my hands linked beneath a wobbling pile of boxes. The next, there was Alfie. "'Let me help you with one of those, miss.' There was no shaking him off. "'I clacked along the corridor as rapidly as I could "'and he bobbed beside me in that jerky way kids do "'when they're keeping pace with a striding adult. "'I knew this would be difficult for you,' he started, "'and I've thought a lot about how to explain it.' "'I couldn't help noticing how smooth and assured he seemed. "'There were none of the hesitations and the sort-ofs and likes "'you'd expect from a typical nine-year-old.' I tried to make contact last year when I was in Miss Davidson's class, he was saying. But she was too strict. I could never get you alone. Whatever he was saying, I didn't want to hear it. I wanted to scream at him again. I really did. But we were out in the playground now and I couldn't risk another scene. Do not listen, I told myself. Close your ears to this. Do not listen. And then Ros Granger emerged from behind the dustbins at the back of the canteen. "'Hello, Yvonne,' she called. "'Is everything all right?' "'I'll leave this box just here, miss,' said Alfie, and he was gone. "'You look a bit ashen, love,' said Ros. "'No, I'm fine, Roslyn, fine. <laughs> "'You know how it is. "'Only a few weeks till the holes, eh?' "'Ros had been at the school nearly as long as me, "'and if she hadn't been so wrapped up in her family, "'I think we could have been good friends. "'Or kind of close at least, but we never quite got there. We had the odd cup of coffee together after school. We'd been shopping once or twice at weekends. But when Sean died, I really did have the sense that she was there for me. You know, that I could have turned to her if I'd really needed to. And I suppose I should have, really. But I guess I'm just one of those who goes numb. Sean's death just seemed implausible. That was the word I hugged to myself. It was implausible, implausible, completely implausible. Oh, the coroner tried to make sense of it in his pedantic official way. Sean had been drinking. He hadn't been looking when he stepped into the road. Was his mind elsewhere? Had we been arguing? Stupid little man as though a ridiculous list of tick-box facts could even get close to explaining it, could fill so much as one tiny seat in the vast, empty stadium that Sean's loss had left behind. No, implausible was the only word for it. Of course, there were times when his absence hit me, like a sudden angry squall surging down the street and flinging a bitter rattle of raindrops against the window, but mostly it just felt flat, a bit like we were working in different places and nothing more than that. You know how when you're at work you get used to the worn patches of carpet in certain corridors, the doors that squeak, the vagaries of the photocopier? And those details make up so much of your waking life. But people don't come home and say to each other, There's a ceiling tile above my desk with a small chip in the far right corner. These are simply things that one person knows and the other one doesn't. Great chunks of your existence that will always be separate. And that was what his death was like for me. It was just like being at work. Being at work all the time and never going home. I could see Ros's mouth moving, and suddenly I realised I wasn't listening to her. She was talking earnestly about something or other. My mind scampered to catch up. I mean, it's all very well to meet the target, but that's not everything, is it? I nodded, waiting for another clue. And I'm absolutely set against the bouncy castle. After last year's broken arm, whatever the parents' committee might say, I'd got it. "'The Christmas Fair again,' I agreed vigorously. "'As far as I could see, the chief function of the school Christmas Fair "'was to provide each year with its defining disaster. "'Last year was the Year of the Broken Arm. "'The previous one had been the Year of the Caretaker's Cat. "'The one before that, the Year of Mr Thompson's Finger, and so on, "'back to Victorian times and probably beyond.' This year, of course, turned out to be no exception. It began at the cake stall. Alfie Halker throws me a look across the hall, approaches the table, takes some coins from his right pocket and buys a slice of walnut fudge cake. Two small children with painted faces cross my field of view. My mouth opens and closes as I try to formulate a response... Then Alfie's mouth does the same as his teeth sink into the large, brown, moist, crumbling, highly toxic slab he's holding in his hands. The first allergens start their journey down his digestive tract. Without me even realising it, my brain connects to my legs and I'm running towards him as fast as I can. In fact, I'm sprinting. Sprinting and screaming at him, but I'm still too slow to stop the second mouthful going down. "'Spit it out!' I scream, but he doesn't react as I smack him on the back, the neck, the side of his head. "'Alfie! Spit it out!' And he doesn't kick as I pick him up. He is strangely limp, like a puppet in my arms, like he trusts me, almost as if I've held him before. Other people are supposed to rally round at a moment like this, but actually they don't. They do the rallying later.' So, though I don't really have the strength to carry him, I have to. The crowd parts as I stumble towards the medical room. They look at us curiously as if we have some important private business to transact, which of course we do. Four generations in South Norwood now,' he's saying as I stumble, "'though I'm half Italian this time. Did you know that?' I have the feeling you get when there's a mobile phone buzzing inside your coat. I'm determined not to answer. I'm sorry, Yvonne. His voice feels strangely close to my ear. I didn't want to use this option, but you can't just keep on ignoring me. Well, you've certainly got my attention now, I'm thinking, though I don't have the breath to reply. I glance down, I have the impression his skin is reddening. Look, it's me, Yvonne. It's me. Who else could it possibly be? It had to be me, didn't it? Well, didn't it? I still don't respond. We've just passed the stall selling festive lampshades and we're out in the corridor. He's slipping out of my arms and my shoes half off. If you'd just listened to me last time, I wouldn't have had to do this. I kick through the swing door of the medical room. At last, I'm breathing heavily and so is he. In fact, he's starting to wheeze. (laughs) The poetry. The way I used to touch your knee. Who else would have known those things? I mean, I can even tell you the brand of ciggies I was on my way to buy when it happened. I plonk him down on the nurse's couch. J.P.S. The Black Ones. John, Player special. Now, how would I have known that? We look at each other. His skin has started to get puffy, but there is something in his eyes that I recognise now. But there is no time. No time at all. Think, 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 medicine cabinet. Um, what am I looking for? And I know you've been waiting for me, Evie. Well, haven't you? Or why would you still be here? Here, in the same place? Ah, there it is. Antihistamine. Thank God. I turn back to him. He's panting now, I guess because his tongue's swelling. But the words still come out. And it's already been nine years. Another four, five. I'll be an adolescent. It's not that long, is it? But I just wanted to be sure you know. Tell me that you know. He's trying to get up off the couch. I want to make him stop, to get him to lie down again, but I have to focus on the instructions for the antihistamine. There is no time. I lost him once. There is no way I'm going to lose him again. When I look up, he has turned brick red. He opens his mouth to say something else, but he produces nothing more than a hiss. I yell at him. Look, for God's sake, Sean, will you just sit down and shut up? Sean! Sean! Sean? Nothing Else Is was written by Elgin Barrett and performed by Danika Fairman. Music was by John Woz and technical presentation by Malcolm Blackmore.